Amen. Quick question before we pray. How many people prayed for snow? <laughs> Just you. Okay, I want to re- recruit you for the prayer team because obviously you overruled me. Anyway, let's lift our hearts to prayer. Father, we just thank you so much today for your presence, for your love, your mercy, and your kindness towards us. We pray that our hearts would be receptive and pliable. We pray that your word would bring increase in our lives. We pray for the pastor for strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, boss. So today we're talking about um, what I'm calling the Christmas grab, a Christmas grab. You know, this is a time where culturally we have sort of as a society, we have turned this, this time, Christmas time, into a time of acquisition, into a time of reaching, into a time of grasping, into a time of wanting, desiring, accumulating, drawing towards us, right? We want more. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen these, but I find them mildly disturbing but also mildly humorous in a weird way. But if you look on the news and you see the, the, the mobs that form at like a Walmart, for instance, you know, when the doors open and the sales go on, there were, there were some this week. And, um, and I'm a Walmart fan. I used, I, used to, I used to work for Walmart, so nothing against Walmart. But, but is, you know, the, the doors would open at Walmart, and there are some videos on the news where you see people are literally fist-fighting to get the latest trinket, the latest tchotchke, you know, just, I mean, they're, they're, the police are there. They're pulling people off. These are adults. And you can actually see the teenagers and children in, in the store kind of like looking around embarrassed because their parents are, you know, fist fighting. Um, and it, like I said, I love Walmart, but I mean, is there really anything in Walmart that's worth punching someone in the nose for, really? Um, when, I was, when I was a teenager, I worked for Sam's Club out in St. Charles. I was 16. And it was Christmas time, and uh, I was a cart boy, and then I was a box boy, and then I was a cash register person, and then on, on up the chain. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but I remember this one Christmas. It was, it was, it was 9 o'clock, about 9 o'clock in the evening, uh, a few days before Christmas. Of course, Sam's was packed, okay? And I was 16, and I was walking through the aisles and meeting people and, you know, helping people find stuff. And my manager comes over to me, and he's like in his 30s. He comes over to me, and he's got this look, this, you know, deeply concerned look on his face. And he goes, Brent, I need you. And I go, okay, what's going on? And he goes, there are some guys in here that are stealing leather jackets. All right? And I go, okay. And he pulls me around to the corner, you know, the end of the aisle, and you can see the door. And sure enough, there's a couple guys, there are a couple guys, and they're starting to walk out the door, and they've got layer upon layer upon layer of leather jacket on. They're just walking out like this, right? And he says, do you see him, Brent? And I said, yeah. And he says, get him. <laughs> and, you know, at 16, your brain is not fully formed at the, at the front. That's psychologically, that's, that's, that's scientifically proven. Um, and so I, he says, go get him. And I thought, of course. Yeah, that's a great idea. So I run across the store. These guys see me coming. I mean, at 16, I mean, I wasn't an imposing figure. I mean, I, I just wasn't. Um, they run. So it's 9 o'clock at night. We're at Sam's. Two full-grown 40-year-old adult men being chased by a 16-year-old kid with a Sam's Club 
T-shirt on and a little Sam Spirit Award button, you know, pinned to my chest. Um, I chase these guys. We run across the parking lot. Then there's some buildings there. We ran past the buildings. Then the guys kind of split up. So I kind of went after one. This is ridiculous, but this is true. The guy goes kind of down a hill, and there's eight lanes of traffic. Okay, there's a free, there's a highway right there. This guy runs across four lanes of traffic, and I'm thinking, yep. And I run across four lanes of traffic right behind him. He hurdles the concrete barrier. I hurdle the concrete barrier. He runs across the other four lanes. I run across the other four lanes. We're, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up to him. He runs down a little hill. He runs up. Then there's a fence. There's like an eight-foot fence right there on the other side of the highway. He jumps up on the fence, and then what hits him is, I can't. I'm not going to get over this fence. I got like eight leather coats on right now. So he stops, turns around, faces me. Now, this was the first moment that I thought, what should I do when I catch him? (laughs) So, so he's standing there looking at me and I'm standing there looking at him. And we both kind of thought, this is really awkward, isn't it? Um, And then he just turned and started walking up the highway. And so then I just turned and started walking up the highway behind him about 10 paces. Not a word was spoken between us. There was just, there was almost a look between us like, I know, dude, this is like crazy. We shouldn't, you know, I wish we were both somewhere else, right? Um, we walk up the highway and of course somebody called the police. So the police pulled over to the highway and they arrested him and he got in trouble. Um, <laughs> it's a long story to say Christmas is a time where we just want more. We grasp we reach out for more. We are always seeking more. And hopefully we're not stealing leather coats, okay? But in all of our hearts, I think we find that throughout life, but especially during Christmas, if we sometimes feel a sense of discontentment. We feel a sense of longing. We feel a sense that the way things ought to be are not the way things are. And, you know, as we get close to seeing our family and we get close to celebrating with friends, maybe we're thinking about our own life. And maybe we're thinking, you know, the relationship that I'm in is not what I want it to be. The job that I'm in, maybe it's not, it's not what I had hoped that it would be. You know, my, maybe, my, maybe, maybe your friendships are strained. Maybe your, your relationship with your own kids are strained or your colleagues or, you know, you're, you're still, you're in school and you're striving, thinking, what, what am I going to become? Where am I going to go? And so it's a lot of thought and a lot of emotions about me, about self, about how do I get what I want? How do I close the gap between the ideal and the reality, right? And so we have this sense of wanting more, wanting more, wanting more. And we've turned Christmas into a period of more. The, Chris, the, the, the question is, what did you get for Christmas, right? We don't go around saying, hey, what did you give for Christmas, right? It's about getting, right? We, keep, we, we just keep striving and grasping and wanting more and more. I'm going to tell a story today about a character that's involved in the Christmas story. Um, and this character is... A fascinating character. He's an historical character because he is universally known to have sort of an insatiable, almost a bloodlust, a desire to for more, for more money, for more fame, for more power. Um, he's regarded as a paranoid, ruthless, and callous dictator by nearly 
every historian that has, has examined him. We're going to study uh, a man named Herod the Great. Uh, here's a sketch of Herod the Great from, a, from an early uh, bust that was made of him. We don't know exactly what he looks like, but he probably looked something like this. And then uh, the History Channel did uh, a, a movie called The Bible, and this is how they portrayed him. Uh, this is Herod. This is how I kind of see him too, actually. Um, but you can take that picture down. Before he turned into that, Herod was, in, in about 74 B.C., he was a young man who lived in the southern region of Judea. And Judea is that area where, where Jesus you know, grew up, and there's Galilee, there's Jerusalem, there's all of that area that was called Judea at that time. And Herod grew up in the southern region of Judea. His dad uh, was an Idumean, and, and the, in the southern region of Judea, you can see a quick little map here. Um, towards the bottom, uh, uh, down south of the Dead Sea, right in that area where you see Beersheba, down in that area was, a, was, a, was an area called Idumea. And so Herod grew up. His dad was a prime minister of Idumea. And the, the king that governed this whole region back at that time was a part of what they called the Hasmonean dynasty. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on the history. I know some of you guys are history buffs. Um, but it's, it, it was for, for decades, that whole region was governed by a family called the Hasmoneans. And the Hasmoneans were a tribal group of warriors that had fought for the independence of Judea. They had fought to keep Judea independent from all these other encroaching armies, okay? So the Hasmoneans were well-loved, well-respected. Herod's dad worked for the Hasmoneans, all right? So Herod always sort of grew up looking around and looking at the power structure of Judea and wanting to find a place to fit into that power structure somewhere. Well, um, a few, when, when Herod was still a, a young boy, the Romans, who were spreading across the globe, they were spreading into Asia, spreading into Africa, spreading into Europe, uh, in the Middle East, they, they, they finally got to Judea, okay? And the Romans came in, and they took over Judea. They ransacked the place, and they took it over. Herod's father, Antipater was his name, was a very cunning, sly, smart, politically savvy guy. And what he said was, let's make friends with the Romans. Let's get close and chummy with the Romans, and that way we can remain in power. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, he, he curried political favor with the Romans, and shortly after the Romans had invaded, he had ad- advanced his son, Herod, to the, uh, to the title of governor of Galilee. So Herod, at the age of 25, became the governor of Galilee, young man, Brought, born into nobility, given this status, given this role at a very young age. Well, right after, shortly after he took on that role, the Hasmoneans tried to make a, a comeback and tried to push Rome out. Well, well, Herod knew that if he wanted to maintain his status as the leader of Galilee and wanted to maintain his power, maintain his title, maintain his, his position, he needed to go to Rome. So... Herod, at 25 years old, gets on a boat, goes to Rome, talks to Mark Antony there in the Senate, and convinces them, says, I'm your man in Judea. Basically, he's saying, let me be your political puppet, because I will rule, and I will make sure that you get your slice of the pie. So in, in a 
hugely important historical moment, the Roman Senate crowned Herod, and this is important, King of the Jews. That became his title. That's the title that he wanted. That's the title that was conferred upon him, not by God, not by dynasty, but by a foreign invading army. The Romans crowned Herod king of the Jews. And here's what happened. As soon as they crowned him king of the Jews, Herod marched up a hill that was right there in Rome and went into the temple of Jupiter and bowed down his knee and began to worship the Roman gods and pay homage to the Roman gods. Why is that important? Because Herod was asking to become the king of the Jews. The the, the Jews worshipped Yahweh. They were monotheistic. They worshipped the one true God, the same God that we worship. And yet Herod, in becoming king of the Jews, because he desired so badly to take that title, to take that role, take that position, he was willing to bow his knee to foreign gods. That causes me to pause for a moment and to ask you today, what are the, what are the idols in your own life? What are the things in your own life and, and in my life? Because I, I look at Herod in a way I relate. I, I kind of get where he's going. He's a guy that wants something and he's almost willing to do anything to get it. And I think if we're honest, all of us, somewhere in our hearts, we see that impulse. We see that instinct where we, have, we, we want to follow God, we want to do what's right, but there's a part of us that's actually willing to compromise what we believe, what we know to be true, our relationship with God, in order to get what we want, in order to put something else before our relationship with God. You know, when I was, when I was uh, a kid one time, my, my friends and I, we were traveling to, we were in New York, we were young guys, and I remember getting on the train, getting on the train, telling the guys, hey, we're going into the streets of New York, all right? So we need to be very careful with our money. You know, we were all, like, from St. Louis, so it was, it was big time traveling to New York. And we're like, all right, we need to be careful with our money. We need to be smart. We need to, like, do things the right way. And, and I was, like, giving them the lecture about how we needed to do things, right? I really took the moral high ground with these guys. Um, and so we got to New York, got off the train. We're walking down the street. Um, I think we were near Times Square. And I've told this story once before, but there were some guys there that had a little table. And on that table, they had three cards. Have you ever heard of three-card Monty? It's a game, (laughs) if you want to call it a game, where naive tourists come into a city like New York and think that they can beat the guy that's playing the game. He's got three cards. There's two cards with two black cards and one red card. And he says, hey, show me the red card. Show me the red card, right? And he's playing this game. Well, you know, I thought as we walked by, I kind of just got distracted as you do, you know, kind of walked by and went, oh, let's just see how this goes. And of course, he knew that I was hooked. And little did I know that like the guys all standing around him were all part of the same scam, right? So I go up and I'm thinking, oh, this game really isn't that hard because I can see he's flipping it over, flipping over, but I can see where the red card is. And pretty soon... I reached down because I put my money in my sock. Did I tell you that? I put my money in my sock because I was like, I'm going to be smarter than everyone and not have my money in my wallet. So I reached down into my sock, and before you know it, I'm like, red card right there. And I put my money down on the red card, right? Guess what? It wasn't red anymore. 
He flipped it over. It was not a red card. And in a second, everybody was gone. The table was gone. The guy was gone. My money was gone. And the guy, you know, the other tourists were gone, right? Everybody was gone. And there I'm standing now with no money. And my two buddies who I had been giving all of the advice to, they were kind of nodding their head like, yeah, right. Okay. New leader, new leader time. Um, but this is, this is, this is what happens in our lives. We, we're going along in life and we want to follow God. We want to do what's right. We want to pursue what he has for us, right? We want to pursue the real goal that God has put in our heart, the dream that God has put in our heart. But sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes in our, in our human nature, we turn aside. Let me ask you this. What are the idols? And just think about these. What are the idols in your life today? What are the things that keep you from pursuing God with your whole heart? What are the things that distract you from following God with everything? Is it pleasure? That, you know, you, you want to follow God, but you're not quite ready to give up this or that or the other thing because, you know, you just like it. You want to, it's more important. Is it uh, comfort? Is it something in a relationship or is it a, a particular relationship? You won't give it up because it's more important to you than God. Is it security? Is it work? Is it fear? Is it your past? We all have little idols that we can build in our lives that we bow down to instead of bowing down to the one true God. And I want to challenge you this Christmas. What is that? What is that? After bowing his knee to the Roman gods, Herod then turned to Jerusalem. He was crowned king of the Jews. Now he's heading back to Jerusalem to claim his throne. First thing he does is he lays siege to Jerusalem. Now he's backed by the Roman armies. So he lays siege to Jerusalem. The, he and the Roman armies come in. Now he's attacking his own people. Okay? He ta- attacks the Jews in Jerusalem. He overcomes them. He gets you know, put into place, crowned, got the throne. Now he's the king. His first order as king is that all of the noblemen and the Sanhedrin and the priests and the rabbis who were loyal to the prior leader... All of them are to be executed. It's like a scene from a mob movie. And in one night, over 35 men were killed, executed because they had been loyal. And these were his brothers, supposedly, his, his Jewish and Israelite brothers. Had them all executed. This is all, most of this is from Josephus, which was a, a, a first century uh, historian. Um, has them all killed. And then he says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Remember I told you about the Hasmoneans, right? They were the they were the the, the ruling group that, that had the uh, that ha- really had the power before he took it over. He said, "I'm going to bring them together into my camp." And so he reached out and he married a woman named Miriam, and she was Hasmonean princess. And he married her, and everyone thought, "Okay, things are going to calm down now, right? Herod's got a wife, and the slaughter is going to end." But his paranoia, his lust for more power, for more prestige was overwhelming to him. And at at one point when he believed that his wife's 17-year-old brother was posing a threat to the throne, he invited the brother out to his palace, um, brought his men out, had a party. And when night came, he had the brother, he invited the brother to get into his pool. The young man got into the pool and Herod's men surrounded him and drowned him. Anybody that 
got in his way, anybody that stood between him and his goal, anybody who stood between him and the desire that he just couldn't seem to, to, to get quite enough, they were killed. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a very dark side to allowing your own self-interest, allowing your own self-desire, your own self-fulfillment to become the Lord of your life. Because what happens when, when you focus so much on that, there's always collateral damage. I know this isn't a totally upbeat Christmas. Um, everybody cool? Should we just talk? Should we just get some coffee and like chill out for a minute? Oh, this is heavy. Um, but it's true. You know, I mean, we, it's important for us to, to recognize that you know, when we focus on ourself, we're, we're, we're damaging not only ourselves but, uh, but others. Um, I heard a sermon recently. Dr. Tony Evans tells this story about Jonah. And he says, you know, what's interesting about Jonah, you know the story of Jonah. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. And he said, no, I don't want to. I, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in this. So he goes the other way. And, uh, and a storm comes upon the boat that Jonah's in. And they all begin to, everybody on the boat, they begin to, you know, wonder what's going on. But the storm is raging. And so all of the men on the boat begin to throw the cargo off the boat. They begin to throw it over, over the edge. And what Dr. Evans points out in that little detail of the story is that, you know, these guys made a living hauling cargo. And it was this one guy's sin that is now interfering with their ability to feed their family. You know, because when we focus so much on our own self, there's fallout. I, I spoke to a family um, a few weeks ago. A husband and wife, two kids, and they've been just sort of nagging at each other. They've been sort of getting at each other. Um, and I've, been ta- I've talked to them several times off and on over, over the years. And uh, the husband just sort of out of the blue decided, you know what, I've had enough. I'm out. And in talking to them, I said, you know, has there been any, is there been any abuse? Has there been any infidelity? Has there been any, you know, is there an addiction? Is there something going on that, that we don't, that I don't know about? And the answer was, no, I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of it. Right. And, you know, we'll see where it all goes, but, but the fallout of a decision like that is immense. There are kids involved. There's the wife involved who's going, what's happening? You know, anytime we focus, and that's an extreme example, but anytime we focus too closely, too intently upon our own desire, people get hurt. In, in Herod's case, not only was, uh, not only did he ultimately kill his wife's brother, um, but he ended up, uh, when he began, began to feel that she was a threat, he had her executed. He had her mother executed. Pretty soon, he spiraled into this sort of bizarre, psychotic, possessed, you know, paranoid state of mind and literally had every Hasmonean person, anyone with that blood running through them, had them executed. It's an amazing, amazing story. Um, and so you may ask, what does this have to do with Christmas? And why are we talking about a total paranoid murderer? Well, um, it does come together. You see, it's in that 
state. It's in that it's in that milieu, okay? It's in that historical context that we see the writing of Matthew chapter 2. And I'm going to read that passage to you. If you can pull that up, Bob. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. This is the guy we've been talking about. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, I want to stop right there. Everything directed in Herod's life has been directed at maintaining this title, king of the Jews. And here are magi. They're basically astronomers. They're probably either, we don't know where they're from. They may have been Zoroastrians. They were some sort of priestly caste. Uh, They come and say, we have reason to believe that the real king of the Jews is being born. Imagine the rage. Imagine the paranoia. Imagine what's going on in Herod's mind right now when he sees this. They say, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So this is the, this is the biblical account that ties into the pre-biblical historical account of Herod. You see that Herod, and, and most of us know the story from there, uh, Herod wanted the Magi to come back and to tell him you know, where they found Jesus. But they went and they bowed down to Jesus. They found Jesus as a, as a young man, uh, a, a, little, a little boy. Uh, they found him there. They gave him um, gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bowed down, the scripture says, and they worshiped him. In all of Herod's days, seeking, acquiring, grasping, grabbing, pulling, fighting, not one person ever voluntarily bowed down and paid homage to him. And yet here is this vulnerable baby boy, swaddled, completely reliant upon his teenage peasant mom and father for his, you know, subsistence. And they're bowing down and they're worshiping him. And then we know that the Magi uh, were, were warned and, and, and decided to go around a different way and get away from Herod. And then the scripture says that Joseph also was warned in a dream. And so he took Mary and the babe and they went to Egypt. And, uh, and later on in Matthew, it describes what's called the massacre of the innocents. Herod, in his psychotic rage, had all, when he found out that the Magi had slipped away, had all of the children in Bethlehem, uh, all the boys in Bethlehem, age two and under, killed. He was just this ravenous, murderous guy who desperately wanted power. I want to contrast him just for a minute with the description of Jesus. Um, If you look at Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Paul is saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then look at this who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he wasn't trying to hold on 
to his status, his power, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus came to set up a different type of kingdom. There's the kind of kingdom that Herod governs, and it's a kingdom of, of, of desire and, and, and oppression and violence. And then there's the kingdom of God, where a different, altogether different kind of king comes. Herod was born into privilege and aristocracy. Jesus was born in a feeding trough surrounded by the sounds and the smells of animals. One ruled with an iron fist and one ruled with an open hand, feeding, healing, strengthening others, pouring out himself. One ruled by spilling the blood of others and then one ruled by spilling his own blood to save the souls of you and me. One was a man who wanted to be a God and one was God who lowered himself into a man. The question I want to just leave with you today is, which king do you want to follow? Which king do you want to follow? Who is the king of your life? Are you following the kingship of self, of desiring, of acquiring, of obtaining, of, of, of wanting more? Or are you following the kingship of Christ, pouring out, giving, helping, loving, serving, The paradox of the gospel is that you do not gain by grasping, you gain by letting go. You gain by giving out. You gain by pouring yourself out to others. You rise by stooping down and serving those who cannot serve you back. You advance by advancing others. You become great, the scripture says, by serving. You give it away. You give it away. The question is, do you want to live in want or do you want to live in generosity because you can live either a life of grasping or you can live a life of giving so i want to say to you today if you're struggling with discontentment if you're struggling with loneliness if you're struggling with this sort of frustration because things aren't the way you want them to be i may not be able to say anything today that is going to solve that problem okay But what I can do is point you to your purpose. And by comparison, your problems will seem small. When you're focusing on what God has called us to do, called you to do, called you to be. I I talked to a pastor this week, a local pastor, who said, we are not called to be a family. We are a family on a mission. Our mission is not to be a family. We're a family on a mission. We're not trying, you know, it's not our goal to to pull more towards us. Even good stuff, love and friendship and companionship, that's all good stuff. But it's not our goal to try to get that for ourselves. It's our goal to give out to others, to pour our life out to others. And so I just want to encourage you today. (laughs) I don't know if I've encouraged you or if I, I I hope this doesn't come off as as harsh and, 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 you know, overly strong. But I, I just want to say to you today, it will liberate you to give to someone else. It will liberate you to serve someone else. It will liberate you to help someone who can't help you back. And so this Christmas, if you're struggling, do that. Don't focus on what you want. Focus on what you can give to somebody else. Turn the Christmas grab into a Christmas gift. That's what Jesus did. He was no longer, he was not a king that grasped. He was a king that gave.
Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. God, we ask that you take this, uh, this amazing story, and, and, and though it's challenging and difficult, we ask that somehow you, you plant it into our heart and help us, Lord, to, to be a servant to other people. Help us to love other people. Help us to pour ourselves out for your glory, God. Give us, give us encouragement today to, as we're walking through life and we see somebody on the street that may need our help or put somebody in our heart that may need our help and just help us to reorient our whole Christmas season. That what's not about getting, it's not about what did you get, but it's about what did you give? How did you pour yourself out for someone else this season? We pray, God, that you'll give us strength to do that. Give us encouragement to do that and inspire us, Lord, to inspire others to do the same. Father, we thank you for your gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're always, we always take a few minutes right at the end of service, and we worship in a few different ways, and I want to invite you to join us, okay? Um, one of the ways that we worship is in prayer. If you need prayer,